Look alive, sunshine. The question is not when you're gonna stop, but who is gonna stop you. The electric centaur, the democrat, the revolution will not be televised. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Grindhouse Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Oscuro. And today I thought we would do something a little bit break from the norm. We haven't really done in a little while. We've been sort of on a run where we've been talking about all this great content that's available and looking back at some movies that I love. And, you know, this podcast is spawned from enjoying and loving movies. So, of course, we're going to do that. If there's something that I watch that I think you guys should watch or... If I want to, you know, I feel like revisiting something that maybe people haven't thought about for some time, or I have a perspective that um, I'd like to share because it might make you view a film in a different manner, then of course we'll do that. But another reason for this podcast, I feel, is to share my experience as a working filmmaker with those of you listening. I'm sure, I mean, there's a million podcasts out there that are designed to talk about someone else's work but uh, what I always found hopefully kind of unique about what I do on this podcast is is come to you from the perspective of someone who's actually doing the work who's in the trenches as they say and so gather around kids we're gonna we're gonna go back a few years to where it all began and revisit something that was a huge influence to me when I was coming up and that was Robert Rodriguez's Rubber Without a Crew, and more specifically, his 10-minute film schools. But before we get into that, we have to do a little bit of uh, house cleaning, so to speak, and we've got to visit our witch contest, because you guys have been so awesome about participating, about uh, you know going to the, the Slasher Apps uh, Instagram, letting them know which movie, you guys were very adamant this week about which movie you preferred, you know, going to our Grand House Podcast Instagram and going to the stories and voting there. So let's announce who won this week between The Witch and Hocus Pocus, and then we'll find out who is competing next week. And then we'll get into the topic of our show. So this week we had Hocus Pocus, which is a childhood favorite of mine. And and certainly I know of many people. It it seems to be something of a tradition for people to put on. You know, uh, uh, it it was, you know, it's obviously more of a, a comedy. It's more of a kid's movie than the movie that I went up against. But, you know, just because it's a witch movie doesn't mean it has to be traditionally scary and in fact there are some people who would argue that the witch which it went up against isn't really that scary um but nevertheless the the totals are in and the witch has won 81 votes to 67 so you guys made it very adamant we're going to play this earnest uh this beloved as hocus pocus is and look i look I, i love hocus pocus i think it's just like a fun film but the witch to me is not only uh, maybe a superior witch movie. I don't know. I think that's debatable and certainly subjective. But as a as a film in of itself, as a as a work of craftsmanship, I think that it's uh, it may be the best movie on this entire bracket. Just again, not specifically as a witch movie, although you could make that argument. And I think it's a odds favorite. But as a as a film, as a as a work of art, it is a beautifully constructed film. And it's an indie film. 
And uh, we'll get more into that when we talk about when we revisit um, the 10 minute film school. But uh, I have a special place in my heart for films that are able to produce such quality with limited resources. I think that's the true testament of a filmmaker. Anyone can throw money at a problem. But when you have very limited funds and you're not only able to, you know, fix issues, but but actually like create something that's memorable that that is that that's like the brass ring that we all strive for right i think the witch and robert egger does that swimmingly so the witch advances and this week for our two movies to vote on our two competing witch movies see which one is the most supreme of them all we have uh, the craft and we have which is also an odds on favorite i think and we also have the witches of eastwick which you know that went in round one. That went up against Witches, which again for me was one of my favorite films. I like Witches of Eastwick. I just haven't seen it in forever, so I thought maybe uh, Angelica Houston's Witches would have won, but he didn't. Witches of Eastwick won, and now it's going up against the craft. So two favorites from people. You know, are you a teen in the '90s, and are you going to identify with that sort of angsty goth, um, self-aware, slick writing from the '90s in the craft? Or you interested in more of an 80s affair, something a little bit more uh, quirky and weird. So remember, there's two ways to vote. You can vote first off going to the Slasher app. And every uh, on there, they'll post tomorrow uh, uh, the two movies. And just in the comment sections, let us know which one you think is better. Which one's the more supreme which movie? And then, of course, for the rest of the week, go over to our Grindhouse Instagram, go to the stories, and vote. Every day I put up a poll. And if I don't put it up, DM me and nudge me. I'm, I'm filming a bunch, so uh, forgive me on that. However, as as we can move on to this competition, it's going to get a lot harder. So these movies, you know, we're out of round one, so now it's winner versus winner. So the, uh, the Witch advances this week. And moving over to the B bracket, we have The Craft versus The Witches of Eastwick. Make your voice heard. Let us know which movie you think is the supreme witch movie. And next week, we will announce the winners. All right, so back to the topic at hand, 10-Minute Film School by Robert Rodriguez. Now, if you don't remember or you don't even know what 10-Minute Film School is, Robert Rodriguez, a prolific filmmaker, um, indie filmmaker, one of my sort of, uh, if I have a Mount Rushmore of indie filmmakers, it would be Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino, Kevin Smith, and John Farrow. And obviously, it's a, I'm a byproduct of the, my time, of my age, right? I, I'm a, I was a teenager in the 90s. And so to me, as much as I love like, you know, the real auteurs, like a Kubrick or a, a Scorsese, when I was coming of age, when I was really finding my own identity, those four guys and, and Miramax and the Miramax Kateers and, and that sort of golden age of indie, right? The Cannes indie films. You know, Rodriguez was right there. Different in a lot of ways, but they were all really different, right? You had Tarantino who was taking these genre films and turning them on their head in these super real films and Kevin Smith who had what, you know, you might call like dirtbag humor, you know, toilet humor, but doing it in a really creative, artistic manner. John Favreau wrote Swingers, which is still maybe one of my, it's definitely one of my favorite films of all time. It may be my favorite indie film of all time, or it's, it's up there right at the top with Pulp Fiction and Desperado. 
And then um, uh, Kevin Smith, yeah, yeah. And that's so. And then you had Robert Rodriguez, right, who was doing like action films on an indie level, just fucking unheard of. Like there might be a, a little bit of gunplay in a Tarantino flick, but it's not like. It's not like what you saw in, in Mariachi. It wasn't people swinging on zip lines and, and squibs everywhere and jumping from one staircase to another. I mean, that, it, it really took the Hollywood action film and did it on an indie budget in a way that was not really uh, – you, you didn't see it very often. It wasn't heard of that often. You know, Normally, when you saw an indie film, it was kind of a drama of sorts. You know, It was a witty – commentary on life perhaps or the genres or something uh, Tarantino's still making that right still doing witty sort of comments on history but but what Rodriguez did was he made his little film feel huge really big budget right and you know there's the the mythology behind the $7,000 movie you know made Maliachi sold his body to science you know w- yes he made the VHS version of it for $7,000 whether or not he, um, you know, that wasn't the even even that film. I think they dumped in like I forget how much it was, like several hundred thousand dollars to make it a get to make a film print of it. So you know, it's a little bit of there's a little bit of like mythology surrounding that. But nevertheless, he made something that really stood out and it launched his career. And he has he for a very long time made a career of taking relatively small budgets and applying the same sort of alchemy to making them feel as big as a a, a a film that has a budget you know 10 times what he has you know he, he would take like someone's craft service budget and he'd make uh you know he'd make from dust to dawn or you know the spy kids films or whatever it may be you know he he really was a master in that field for a very very long time and one of the things aside from just you know his work as a director that that was captivating to me was his willingness to share his experience as an indie filmmaker to inspire other filmmakers. You know, like growing up in a small, predominantly Hispanic town in South Texas, like, you know, we, we, it's, it's, it's about as far from Hollywood as it gets. I and mean, we had a, a couple brushes with Hollywood. Um, you know, a little bit before my time, maybe when I was a baby, they made the, the legend of Billie Jean with Christian Slater in my hometown. And when I was maybe 19 or so, yeah, maybe 18, yeah, maybe 19, they uh, they shot part of Pearl Harbor. We, we had this battleship out in the bay, and, you know, there was a, you see in the newspaper clipping, um, Ben Affleck and this little golf cart, you know, no, no one ever sees any of these people. But, you know, and, and then, of course, the, the Selena movie shot parts in, in Corpus, so little brushes, but it wasn't a real job. It wasn't, like, anything that one could realistically aspire to. It wasn't until years later that um, by happenstance at a Christmas party, I met my friend Andrew Lee, who is a great documentary producer, who was telling me that that's what he did for a living. And by this point, I was definitely interested in film in a big way, you know, mid-20s. But again, no background in film, no, you know, uncle, cousin, brother, dad that worked in film, no, no pathway whatsoever. What I did have was the making ofs in DVDs back before streaming, back in the old early part of the 21st century when 
physical copies of movies was still sort of a thing. We could still go to your Blockbuster or your Hollywood videos or whatever your local, you know, I Love Video in Austin or Amoeba here in Los Angeles. And you could rent physical copies of movies that had the special features. And it was a lot of making ofs and interviews and behind the scenes type stuff. I loved it. I love that. I still love that stuff. You know, in some ways, I was more interested in the behind the scenes, the making ofs, than sometimes the movies themselves. Or certainly movies I'd seen a million times. I was captivated by this magic that was, you know, unraveling before me. I hope that I I haven't lost some of that. I'd like to think that I've maintained some of that excitement when I was just a, a young grommet with a penny and a dream, so to speak. And so... Rodriguez's films and you know his behind the scenes in particular were really uh, engaging because they weren't just like here's what's happening behind the scenes he was breaking it down he did these what these things were called uh, 10 minute film scores and he'd already done I think by this point he'd already written the book uh, Rebel Without a Crew which I've I've owned about three different copies over the span of my uh, life and I usually read them until they're completely worn and I'll hand it off to another young filmmaker and then I'll get the urge to read it again and I buy another copy and so on and so forth but those 10 minute film schools were I mean I just ate those things up like I would watch them and watch them and watch them and um, you know the very one of the very first things that he espouses in the very original 10 minute film school was do you want to be a filmmaker and, and it's a classroom full of folks and they all raise their hand he's like you're wrong you are a filmmaker. The moment you decide you want to be a filmmaker, you are one. Go make a business card and start thinking like a filmmaker. And sure enough, I went out and I got, I've probably had, you know, I have a, I have an actual film company now called Oscuro Films. But back then, you know, I probably went through five or six different names of mostly just pretend production companies, you know, Art Crime Films, Coursera Black. I mean, I can't even remember how I mean, uh, uh, Invenium, you know, Fasium. I, I just every you know every once in a while, I'd imagine what it would be like to have my own label, my own imprint, and so those those videos were super influential to me. And uh, one of the one of the things about film that they may or may not share with you is there are folks, those of us who are, I'd like to consider myself, oh God, twelve years now, vet, a veteran who actively look for people that they can share their knowledge with you know it's kind of like um you know the master the sensei to the student right to the pupil and and uh for me you know my sensei was jude walker we've had him on the show a billion times you know i'm sure i've told the story on the show before i was a young pa who happened upon his set because my ex-girlfriend got hired as the hairdresser and i offered to work for free and within a couple of days, I was promoted to the coordinator. I was a set PA. I was, I mean, I was wearing multiple hats and I, I struck an impression and I'll never forget it. I'll tell this story to the day I die. I was so broke at the time that I was on uh, like below E in my car. I mean, I was dead broke and I wasn't going to be able to get, I maybe could get home from set and I definitely wouldn't make it to set. I And you know, this is before the age of uber or lyft and not that i had any money for it anyway and um and you know it's not like i could ask my mom to just cash app me or venmo me right it just wasn't that technology didn't exist so i'm kind of screwed right like i want to keep working on set and and but i, I got I have you know i have no way to get there 
And one rainy night, uh, Jude pulled me aside and I don't know, we were about midway through the shoot and he said, I know you're not getting paid very much, um, but you're, you're, you're working really hard and I just want to let you know that I appreciate that. And he gave me a $100 bill. And, and he didn't have to do that, just out of his own pocket, just because he saw me hustling. And, you know, he didn't know until years later. But, you know, I used that money to put gas in my car and maybe got some food a little bit. And, and I was able to continue on working there. And then a couple months later, that, that panned off. And I came out to Los Angeles for the first time. And I worked with him on an indie film and off to the races, right? Bob's your uncle. And we were 20 films working with each other as a me as a PA for him him you know as a second ad for him me as a line producer and him as a co-producer like we've 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 had this merry-go-round of roles because it doesn't matter right we're just we're we're comrades in arms when it comes to film and because i apparently did something that garnered his respect and then he passed down that info to me so i then want to pass on the info that i now 12 years later have learned to my own senseis and for all of you who are listening and who are interested i'm here to pass on that info this is what robert rodriguez was doing in you know the late 90s you know again this is like an unwritten rule of film that those who have come before are always looking to pass that info that's how your legacy grows right you could uh, we'll have Jude on again at some point. He could just talk about the, the Waco family tree, so to speak, between me and Dan Campbell and Mark. And, you know, the list goes on and on. And Courtfish and all those people that he's been able to take under his wing, teach them up and then watch their, you know, their careers sail. Or, or you know, the other odd thing is sometimes it's not for everyone. And those people just decide it's not the career path for them and they go on their own way and they do something else. That's okay too. So for me, when I was a young person watching this, this is, you know, two years before I met Jude, this is like Oh seven. I was working in retail and, uh, you know, I'd met Andrew Lee. So I knew that it was possible to be a filmmaker, but I didn't really know how. And these, these videos were part of what showed me how to be a filmmaker and I apply most of those still to this day. So I thought it'd be fun to take this list of, um, you know, different uh, different uh, pieces of advice that he shared in the very original 10-minute film school. And I want to see how I look at them now as, a, as now a veteran, as a now growing. I don't know if I'm quite an old salty dog yet, but I'm getting there. There's a couple of grays in my chin hair, you know. Uh, the bags in my eyes, they're... they're they're transitioning from to from Chanel to um, Jan Sport, you know, and I thought I'd look at them and I would just add on to them now. So, without further ado, this is going to be some version of like one hour film school, or maybe forty five minutes since I've rambled for about twenty. So, let's just go down the list and see how many of these things still apply. So the very first thing I mentioned it earlier that he says it's out the gate, right? Number one with the bullet. You want to be a filmmaker, wrong. You are one. So this is an important important lesson to learn. And um, it's got it's 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 something of a hydra. It's a little bit of a, a double-edged sword. Because on the one hand, people like Rodriguez inspired a whole group of young filmmakers to just stop waiting for someone to invite them to the dance and just pick up a camera and go. And you wouldn't have maybe 
the Robert Eggerts of the world, if not for Rodriguez telling people, hey, just you are, don't wait for anyone, just you are one. However, I, I have to add a little bit of an, an addendum to this one. If you believe, if you want to be a filmmaker, you are one. Time to start thinking like one. But part of thinking like a filmmaker is thinking like an artisan. You've got to learn your craft. And again, I'm sure I'll drop all kinds of walkaisms because again, this is the person that I, one of the people, learned from a bunch of people, but one of the earliest ones and the consistent one. Don't say you can fly a 747 when you're really just flying a Cessna. Learn your crap. There is no, uh, there's no shame in taking time to learn how to be good at something. You know, I was pro- if I look back at my career, I was was implementing producer qualities from from Jump Street because I worked in retail management before, and maybe I have a natural inclination to problem solving. You could say that I was producing from Jump Street, but I would not have called myself a producer because I had not learned my craft. I had not gotten to the point where I could confidently hold myself up with other professionals. That being said, I was thinking like one, but that's only the first step. The follow-up steps are you have to apply yourself and learn your craft. If you're a swords sword maker, if you're a blacksmith, right? You, you don't just go from being like, I want to be a blacksmith to all of a sudden making swords for the king, right? You've got to, you got to sit there and you got to apprentice. You have to learn from a master. Then you become a journeyman. Then eventually you become a master, right? If you're a practitioner of magic, you don't go from saying, oh, I'm interested in magic. And all of a sudden you're uh, you know, um, a magus. You, you, you start as a neophyte. This is just – this is something that has gotten really lost in the digital age. Where anyone can, you know, buy a red camera or a Alexa Mini or a, a Black Magic, and all of a sudden now they're a DP. And, and the fact of the matter is, is being a director of photography requires a skill set that you just won't have fresh out of film school, or certainly, or or deciding to be a filmmaker. But but what you can be is you can have that mindset, and you can go out. And you can start learning your craft knowing that nothing is going to stop you. So I agree with him. If you want to be a filmmaker, if, you, if that's what your desire is, you know, if you've listened to the show, you know, like, do as thy will, right? If that's your will, then you are a filmmaker. You already are one. You're thinking like one. But part of thinking like one is not just dreaming about being one, but actively being one and learning your craft. And you're only going to learn by doing, which brings us, I think, to number two, the very second thing he has, which is that you can't learn to be creative, which I actually disagree with, and I'll get into that more, but, you know, Rodriguez would say that you that people are either born creative or they're not, but you can learn to be technical, and oftentimes, creative people don't learn how the technical aspect of them, of, of filmmaking, which then makes them rely, reliant on technical people to make their vision happen and i agree on that second part i I think i think everyone is born with a certain level of creativity it's a matter of of a having that creativity cultivated in a in an environment that is um positive and supportive but also learning to apply that that creativity in the right areas right so for example um 
you might be creative, but that creativity doesn't lead you to being a good filmmaker because your disposition doesn't work well within it. But but maybe you're a writer or maybe you're a singer or a painter or whatever else, right? So I, I do think that everyone has – and you know what? Even like you know non-traditional creative things like, hey, man, maybe you're a really creative accountant. Lord knows Hollywood has lots of creative accountants learning how to apply their, their chef – accounting skills to cooking books it's i mean age-old story so there's plenty of creative accountants in the world of hollywood so you can be creative at anything you can be a creative sandwich artist you can be a creative gas station employee like everyone has a creative bug in them you just got to find it cultivate it and apply it in the right way but let's say you're a film creative right let's say that you do have that disposition the the aspect of learning the technical i dead on agree with that because um, if you're if you're someone who works in film and you have um, worked around execs, for example, and I'm not gonna bag on execs because I hate when crew bags on production. Uh, I, I've done I've worked in different facets of film. I've been an executive in charge of production. I've been a line producer. I've been a production manager. I've you know I've done the gamut from that. So I understand. But when you work in film long enough what you'll come across you'll be what you might find yourself astounded by is how many people aren't that creative and it's not that they're not that creative it's that they are not technical and because they're not technical their ideas aren't rooted in any sort of base you know just like earlier i was talking about if you want to be a filmmaker you got to learn your craft that's your base right it's your foundation part of the creativity that that allows it to be applicable is a base of technicality. Now, I'm not claiming to be the most technical person in the world. I mean, I, if you gave me a red camera, I, I certainly would not claim to have a, an idea on how to shoot it. But if you give me a, a prosumer camera, I could probably whip something up. Uh, I have a, a rudimentary understanding of editing. I mean, I edit this podcast. I've edited short films. Um you know, I have a, a rudimentary knowledge of post-production. I've learned enough over the years about a bunch of different aspects of film that I can apply them so that when I have a creative suggestion, I know what's doable and I know what's not doable. And this goes, by the way, like the, the perspective of Rodriguez is a little bit from a director standpoint, maybe even uh, solely from a director standpoint. But, but... It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't apply strictly to that. Like as a producer, if I'm reliant on departments to tell me what they can spend or what it needs to take, and I have zero base in that, like obviously they're the experts, right? They've learned their craft, but I have to have some understanding of what it takes to build a set. Some understanding of of how fast a camera team needs to set up. Like if I, I need those things for my job, for my skill set, right? And if you're in more of a creative position, you need that understanding as well. You know, we've had David Venable on the show a couple of times, and he's currently working with me on a, on a handful of shows and killing it, by the way, right? As a, for a guy who's very creative artistically, no no shame in being humble and, and putting the work in to be a good production assistant and being there just like on top of everything um, – always looking to do something always looking to stay busy always trying to find a way to help out and and be ahead of things and and that's how you learn stuff you learn by by getting your hands dirty and 
and not just in one thing, not just in one field, like really try your hand at a lot of different things. I, I don't recommend, you know, having a billion job titles because you could be that you could very quickly become the jack of all trades, master of none. However, I do think there is value in learning the technical skill, especially if you're a director and or a producer, because it makes you a it makes it easier to work with other people when you have some understanding of what their job entails. I mean, that's common sense, right? Like if you have some common ground, some mutual respect, which comes from having an understanding of of what goes into their craft that they've put all this time into, it makes working together so much better because it's a lot less likely that, that someone is going to feel that um, they're being asked to do something that is groundless, right? You don't want to be Prince. There's that Kevin Smith story of, of he went to uh, Paisley Palace to interview Prince and and Prince in the middle of the night asked for a camel in the middle of Minnesota in the middle of the winter, right? Which is nigh impossible, but he, he was Prince and he could ask for whatever he wanted to and it was it was up to his poor uh, staff to try to figure out how to you know accommodate this. And so you don't want to be that person. That per- that kind of filmmaker is really difficult to deal with. And unless you're brilliant and there are those people, that 1% that are just so brilliant that they that, that are prints, right? That can ask for that camel in the middle of the night. And people will acquiesce to it because they're that talented. If you're not that 1% person, you might want to learn how to be um, at least somewhat, like I said, at least on a rudimentary level, technically savvy, at least so that you have some understanding of when you ask for something, what's doable and what's not doable. And it also help you from getting bullshit by people who tell you something's not possible when you know that it is. Which brings us to number three, movie experience, right? He talks about how you get movie experience. And you, you get experience by doing, right? I mentioned earlier, roll your sleeves up, get your hands dirty. Now, a lot of people are going to say, well, how do you get started? If you, how do you get on a film set if you, if you got no experience? Well, uh, you could be like me and just volunteer to work for free. I know there's a, lot, there's a whole contingent of people who will sort of um, advise against working for free. Um, and I, I understand it. I understand that as well because, you know, you don't want your labor being taken for granted. But I frankly, personally, and maybe there's like a, maybe there's like a more systematic way of, of doing it. But like if you, the, the problem with, with that sort of ideology is that it's really hard to get experience without knowing someone if you don't if you're commanding top dollar uh, and I'm not even saying top dollar but like you know look the reality of it is when I'm hiring PAs if I'm paying someone 14 15 dollars an hour I'm going to hire experienced PAs 9 times out of 10 and it's not because you don't want to give the opportunity it's just that it's a risky venture you know like I said at the very beginning of the podcast Sometimes when you're passing that knowledge down, it doesn't stick or it's not for the right person. And so obviously if someone's got a lot of experience, there's probably some, you know, the the chances that they've figured out that A, this is what they want to do and B, they were liked, they did a good enough job that someone recommended them and kept giving them work. 
your odds are that you're gonna get you're gonna get someone who's more reliable. You're it's just like anything else. You're a lot more likely to take a flyer on someone when they're willing to work, you know, to to apprentice so to speak. But it's not legal, and people can get mad at me and all that shit. So, uh, whatever, you know. I, I came up that way. I'm a strong proponent of it. I'm not a proponent of being taken advantage of. You got to make the choice that's right for you. I'm not saying don't ask for minimum wage, which is really all $14 an hour is out here in Los Angeles. But also, hey, I'm not saying go work for a Marvel film for free. But if your buddy's got like 50 grand and he's trying to make his little indie film in a house and he needs some extra help, it wouldn't be the worst idea if you're looking for experience to um, to offer your services. Uh, it is, you know, if you go on certain Facebook groups, people will laugh about, you know, credit, copy, and meal all the time. And we make jokes about it as well. That was used to always be the line. And in every like Craigslist post, a Craigslist post that was asking for, you know, crew was always like, no pay, copy, credit, and mail, right? So and like, how much rent can you pay with your copy and or your credit? And you know, I get it. I do. But find your way in. Sometimes that's not always the most profitable way at the beginning. I had a lot of lean, lean years in, I mean, probably the first four years of filmmaking. I was barely making ends meet. But it pays off eventually if you're learning your craft, right? So all these things sort of build on one another. If you're learning your craft and and you're you're getting a, a, a in-depth understanding of how the process works, and you're you're only getting that by by doing it by being there, um, then you then you'll you'll probably stick around, right? You'll you'll eventually uh, you you will find your niche and you'll find a way to make a living off of it, and maybe even a a very lucrative. You know, career out of it. So um, you got to kind of get in there, and you got to find your way in. Now, that being said, also, uh, it's not limited to getting on set. Although I strongly recommend that. One of the ways that I got on set for the first time was being a free extra, right? I figured, hey, stand around on set, get craft service, be in the background of a, a movie with Heather Graham or. Friday Night Lights season five or Boyhood by Robert uh, Richard Linklater, you know somewhere in all those flicks you might see my hand or maybe I'm in the background somewhere deep deep in the back, but I found a way to get on set and just observe the process. But it's not just about observing; you have to also a- apply, right? And um, you know, free PA work or cheap PA work is one way to do it. But make your own films. I cannot stress this enough. I don't even care what position you want to do. If you want to be a writer, if you want to be a director, if you want to be a producer, hell, if you want to be a grip brother, make your own film. Produce your own film too. Don't just make it. Like if you want to be a director, don't just get your buddy who's responsible uh, like a dude like me to produce it like that's fine those guys will be there to help and and um, you know, sometimes oftentimes you need that help but get into it yourself and produce it yourself because again just like understanding the technical aspect of filmmaking understanding the logistical process of filmmaking is so important so that you understand what is possible and what's not and you'll put your time and your energy into the things that are going to make your project awesome and not a bunch of shit that you saw like 
I don't know, um, that you saw, I don't know, Richard Linklater or Chris Nolan or or any of those, you know, um, really Scott, you know, David Fincher, like you, trying to apply something you saw in Zodiac to a, a $10,000 short or ten a $10 short, it's probably not going to come off the same way. But um, when you do your own films, you'll realize, I'll give you a great example. Years ago, uh, maybe 2009, um, I did the zombie short that was called uh, Absinthe Makes the Dead Live Longer. It was for Dismember the Alamo competition that the Alamo Draft House was throwing um, in Austin. And I think the only prompt was zombies, right? And so me being I'm a genre dork and, and obviously if you watch that, you can see how influenced I was by um, – the Grindhouse movie, Planet Terror. I mean, fucking this podcast is named Grindhouse. It's pretty obvious, right? So, you know, I did like the the scratchy filter over the project and me and my now brother-in-law and my ex-girlfriend, like a couple of our friends, we just, you know, I, I had a an old Canon GL1, which was like a the prosumer version of the XL1, which is what people in the 90s were shooting documentaries with. Uh, I think uh, I think 28, day, 28 Days Later shot on the XL1 or maybe the XL2, but um, it was a very grainy docu look. So I had the prosumer version of that, right? Uh, the cheaper version of the cheap camera. And um, shot on mini tape. And I, as a young, you know, growing director, I threw the kitchen sink in it. I had zombies. I had flashbacks. I had multiple locations. I doubled locations for a different location. I had to swap out an actor at the last minute. Um, so I had to shoot him from behind. You know, there was special effects. There was gore effects. There was VFX. There was sky replacement. There was an homage to Young Guns. There was a, a steady cam stuff. There was like a, like you know, I really was like every, again, exactly what I said at the beginning of this, right? All the shit that I loved from directors that were established, I tried to do myself. And you know what I learned? That stuff's real fucking hard to do. So you have to sort of know when to hold them and when to fold them. And you learn that by doing it. And you don't want to waste someone else's money. You know, you, it, you can't, it's, you, you only get so many swings at bat. So, you know, make your own thing. You know, buy nowadays, this is, nowadays everyone has iPhones and they have their Androids and, you know, there's there's uh, all, all these sort of attachments that you can use to create that, that are relatively inexpensive. Go do that. In fact, uh, use the cheapest equipment possible. There's another little part where he talks about, um, you know, uh, the, there's a camera in the classroom in the video that he's doing, and and he says, you see this tri there's this uh, um, tripod. It's too nice. The problem with this tripod is you're gonna. It's so nice. You're gonna put your camera on it, and it's gonna be static, right? Get yourself a wheelchair. Roll yourself around. Like when when me and my brother-in-law John were doing uh, any of the number of shorts that we did for the Alamo Draft House competitions, you know, John, who's way more technical than me, by the way, he made a steady cam out of um, uh, some some piping and uh, a two-pound weight and just some wing nuts. And boom, and it worked well enough for what we were doing. I think uh, at the time, I think they might be still around. There was a YouTube channel called Indie Mogul. 
So if you're a young filmmaker and you're learning, you're trying to learn how to do stuff on the cheap, I recommend checking their channel out if they're still around. If not, I'm sure their old videos are around. But um, go to Home Depot. Get all your. In fact, if you're a first-time filmmaker, go to Home Depot and outside of your camera, buy 90% of all your film tools there. Now, is it gonna look great? Probably not. Is it going to be the right way to do it? Definitely not. But you're going to learn how much a, a clothespin and some wax paper can work as a, as a diffuser, right? Um, which bulbs to get that give you the right kind of light to light a scene so it doesn't make your show look blue, right? How to use practicals. Like these are things... Um, you know how to make a steady cam out of some piping and or you know there's the famous shot in evil dead where they just strapped a camera to a plank of wood and that's how they created that cool like uh the evil spirit like going through the woods like there's so many things that you can do that are going to force your creativity to come to the forefront that that when you have nicer equipment and you have more money you can um you know you can uh lose some of that Innovation that you have when you don't have anything, you know. Innovation is a mother, uh, or uh, what's the old phrase? Um, you know, need is the mother of invention. So you know, go out there with the least amount of quality and see how much innovation you're able to pull out. You might create something that is unique. You know, uh, one man's flaw is another man's art. Hide behind that. That's a Robert Rodriguezism, right? Hide behind your mistakes. Make them part of your creative process, right? Uh, explain them away. And then um, you might find that just like there are people who spend millions of dollars on a canvas that's painted blue, you might catch someone's eye and what you think is a series of mistakes might be to, to the uh, beholder a series of happy accidents that make a really cool piece of art. So um, do that. Make your own stuff. And then the third thing, this is kind of a longer one, but um, learn from other people's mistakes. If you can get on set, whether it's a big set, little set, um, indie little thing, learn from everyone else's errors. Because uh, when I was starting, I, I sort of, quote unquote, I'm an air quoting production manage this air quotes pilot called the success of the four and um we shot a restaurant scene during hours it was noisy as hell and i remember saying i was like i don't think it sounds gonna work for this and the director was like no no no, it's gonna be great we gotta get it so of course that shot ended up being unusable because it was so loud with the music i mean it had music overhead and it had people talking and eating and servers and the kitchen and it was completely unusable in its originally intended purpose but what came from it was some sort of funky montage and so you you know you turn your lemons into lemonade but but then you know forevermore hey sound is important i mean during the summer during this podcast can be brutal because i gotta turn my air conditioning off and so that just so you don't get that hum it's just like little things like that that you learn over time from either doing them yourself and make, making a mistake or observing other people make that mistake and or just learning from from someone who's more experienced than you so get that experience you don't have to be on a big set to do it just get on it uh the next thing that he talks about is writing a script He's like, if you know how to, make, if you don't know how to make a script good, 
it's going to make your script more creative. Well, I kind of agree with that. Here's the problem. There is an actual formatting to film. And I have been on many indies where it was very evident that the writer did not know how to write, like to format, right? I'm not saying, not speaking to their creativity, but just in terms of formatting. And what you end up getting is something that's too long or too short because there is a, uh, there's an equation, there's sort of a math behind figuring out how long something is. Generally speaking, when formatted correctly, um, one page equals one minute, right? So if you've got 90 page script, you in theory should have a 90 minute movie. Now, of course, if um, on page seven, you write the battle ensues, which is simply a line, but what your intention is, is a 20 minute epic um, Marvel cinematic fight scene. Well, then obviously that's different, but but that's what I'm talking about. You need to know those things. You need to know that when you write the battle ensues, that does that that probably is going to be a lot longer than you're expecting. So your 90 page script is now a 120 page script or 110 page script. So um, you know, don't you got to learn the rules before you can break them in some instances. And while it's good that you don't want to be cookie cutter, and it's, I definitely recommend experimenting. I mean, you know, we talk about movies all the time and, and the weird Mandy's and the Tusk and all that. But, but um, you know, Picasso learned how to be a classical painter before he got into cubism. So from that same approach, have at least an understanding of, uh, of, of screenwriting. Um, it's important. It's important. Um, one of my great joys in life is watching Miss Ophelia write because she's even just in the few, you know, I'd say it's been about a year and a half or so that she's really decided that she got bit by the writer's bug. To watch her natural creativity pour out on a page and see it get refined and sharpened and more layered and more dramatic and, and more tension building to see that skill set build has been super uh, it's it's inspiring to me right and I'm very proud of her and so uh, put the, again back to learning your craft right put that energy in to learning the rules so then you know how to break the rules effectively and also so you can get your script read because back when I was working at a, a production company I used to read scripts for the producer and um, there was always a running joke that if if I could get past the first 10 to 20 pages, then it was probably a good script. Otherwise, it was garbage because some scripts are just so bad out the gate that you, that executives just – they're very busy people. And again, they're kind of filmmakers adjacent in many ways. You know, a lot of times people who are creatives um, or are executives – you know the the old adage is they were they used to be someone's assistant and now they're the producer with even though they don't have their own filmmaking experience like in a, in a practical on set way um, or or you know they they broke into the industry straight into being you know a junior associate or a junior executive and so they've never they didn't you know they didn't do those indie films by themselves and many of them maybe didn't even go to film school so what you get from that is it's not to say that they're bad at their job. It's because being an exec isn't strictly filmmaking. It's also deal making and it's it's other stuff, right? But a byproduct of that is that a lot of times they can't visualize what you visualize. You have to make it 
crystal clear. And, and part of doing that is learning how to format your script in a manner that is readable. So again, learn the rules before you break the rules. It will pay dividends for you. Um, talked about this a little earlier, but I want to reiterate it. You know, problems that come up. There are always problems. You know, part of my career and why I've been very fortunate to be to find work and to be hired and rehired by you know producers who respect what I can do is that I'm a, I I take pride in problem solving and um, and because I came from the low down dirty indies where you didn't have money to throw at a problem you even have people to throw at a problem I learned I learned how to solve it in other ways again we reiterate right necessity is the mother of invention if you don't any any person i could take any person off the street and give them a hundred million dollars and they could produce something on a film level right anyone can throw money at a problem anyone can throw bodies at a problem that is not the mark of a true filmmaker it's nice lord knows you've earned it by a certain point but like but like learning how to create with nothing is the true benchmark of filmmaking. There's um, uh, if you listen to the show long enough, you know that I am a practitioner of magic, and one of the people who I uh, have gleaned a lot of information from, someone that I would view as a, a, a teacher, a sensei in the world of magic, is Damien Eccles of the West Memphis Three. And he often says with magic, you know, there's lots of tools with magic wands and and tarot cards and sage and tinctures and, and all kinds of stuff, right? Um, but with magic, for example, you should be able to be dropped buck naked in the middle of the forest and be able to do magic with nothing but yourself. Um, that's an echolism, right? Uh, and in the same way, that's filmmaking. You should be able to be dropped in the middle of the woods, buck naked, and be able to make some form of entertainment. Now, could you make a film? I don't Maybe not. I don't know that unless you're like MacGyver, I don't think you can create film out of fig leaves. But, you know, you should be able to find solutions to things. And a lot of times that's exhausting yourself. A lot of times that's wearing multiple hats. A lot of times it's learning to anticipate problems so you're not in a position to have to throw money at a problem. But the point of it all is, is that when you put your focus on creative solutions, which again, you'll learn the bedrock of how to do that by applying yourself, you're not going to be someone who's dependent on money. Because if you're de- the more money you are dependent on, the less creative freedom you have. When you are reliant on nothing, you are completely and 100% free. And if you're an artistic person, this is your goal, right? To have full artistic range, do whatever you want in whatever manner you want. So if it's just you, if you're a one-person gang, then there's no one to tell you what, if it's right or wrong. The only person you'll then have to answer to is your audience. But at least you'll do it your way, like Frankie said. So creative solutions, not money hoses. Learn, learn to focus on the former. Now, I talked about creative execs and how sometimes, oftentimes, they're not able to visualize your vision. When I was uh, in uni, I had a, I took a creative writing class. Originally, before I got into filmmaking, I 
fancied that I'd be some sort of novelist, which is still on the uh, old bucket list. But I remember my creative writing teacher said, you're not going to be in the room when someone reads your story to explain what they don't understand. And the, the same applies to film. And so, again, just kind of like with when we're talking about script writing and, and how to make sure that it's something that is um, clear and understandable to, to people, to, to execs, explaining your vision, the elevator pitch, and then not just to execs, but everyone on your crew, right? Communication, if you're a director, is, is paramount. So how do you develop that? How do you cultivate that, right? And this is where I would lean into what Rodriguez says. Take a blank screen and stare at it and imagine your movie cut by cut by cut. Know that movie inward and outward. Know exactly how you're going to shoot it. And then if you've got if, – if you're – if it's – how you want to shoot it is rooted at all in, in some semblance of technicality you will be unstoppable and you learn to not take no from anyone because you'll know what's possible and what's not possible. I've had many conversations with Jude about certain shots that he's done in his features, you know, be it the incantation, which is available everywhere on Amazon Prime or Shark Island, which is hopefully coming out later this year. And in every instance, like you got, again, Kenny Rogers, learn to hold him, learn to fold him. There are very specific shots that Jude has looked for and made work that were maybe other crew members didn't understand, but he was able to communicate it. And then once it was done, everyone was like, oh, man, that was amazing. It's like because he knows the cut and the movie so well that that he's not there to direct by committee. That's like that's a bad thing. Everyone fancies themselves a creative person on set, and that sometimes you, you you may be creative, but like it may not be your role to be creative if your job is to move sandbags. So, um, watch watch your film in your head a million times, almost to the point where you could just with a a couple words paint a picture for someone that is so so clear that there is no way that they won't recognize what your vision is and then move to recreate that um i talked a little bit about equipment you know rodriguez would say don't buy expensive gear learn to make from shitty equipment i talked about that earlier but i'm gonna i'm gonna add another thing you know is um don't necessarily go gonzo either you know i talked about trying to do too much trying to get too fincher too scorsese on on my little zombie short um but there's other ways you know there's other ways to to work within the realm of what your budget allows but not be either static i.e. put the camera on the nice tripod tripod but also not be not be so uh, you know in the years since these videos came out everyone did this like handheld shaky cam vibe and it's overplayed so so overplayed and you don't want to be like everyone else you want to be unique right so find the middle ground one thing that I did, I did this short. I, I won't ever, I don't think I'll ever release it. It just was, the audio ended up being way too bad. But there was a couple of things that I really liked from it. I had this vision for a shot where a little kid is angry because his mom makes him take the trash out. He wants to play his video games and he's got to do chores. And so it's a, it's a locked shot for a moment. Uh, actually, no, sorry, it's a slider shot of a kid walking in the back alley of his house 
with the bag of trash and he tosses it into the trash bin, right? And he kind of kicks it a couple times because he's, you know, angry, blown off steam. And uh, if you don't know what a slider is, it's essentially, it's a couple pieces of pipes on a couple of charlie horses, you know, if you want to do the, the Home Depot route. And you can, you, you put your, your camera on some skate wheels and you're able to sort of roll it back and forth. It's kind of like a dolly, but a poor man's dolly. Um, you may be vaccinated and get like five to eight feet of movement. So I sort of tracked along with him, right? Moved sideways with him along to the trash can and then followed him about halfway back out of, and then let him leave frame so that I locked off my camera right in the midpoint between the trash can and the kid who has now left frame entirely. And I waited a beat and then the direction I gave the kid was wait two beats off camera and then come running back in the frame at full blast, screaming and drop kick this trash can, right? This was the sort of the com- comedic beat I was trying to hit. And it didn't take much. It wasn't ex- It wasn't an expensive move. Um, I didn't have expensive equipment to it, but I also didn't just handhold it the whole time. You know, when when no matter what equipment you have, every move must have purpose. It must have intention. Don't do anything just because it. This is the, the fucking death nail. It looked cool. Don't be that guy. Be the person who has intent with every single move. And your story will be enriched from that. And um, you don't necessarily need expensive equipment to do that. Uh, this sort of next one dovetails off that, which is don't overlight. Uh, don't underlight either. You know, again, since these videos came out, everyone went, went all gonzo and just used practicals. And that's cool. But again, don't, don't be the follower. The other more recent thing that everyone has done since Mandy came out is the neon lights. You know, I, I worked on a film called Acceleration, and we did the same thing, you know, because um, we didn't have any money for real lighting or for a, a robust lighting kit. So, you know, we got some, we stylized the hell out of it. Now, that was a creative idea, and I think it actually worked within the context of this thing. It might have been one of the best things, actually, about this film. But, but if everyone is doing the neon lights, go a different direction. Do something else. Figure it out. Shoot in fucking black and white. You know, find it. Uh, you don't have to overlight a scene. You won't have the money for that. But but don't just follow suit with everyone else. If everyone's doing dark, barely lit Game of Thrones finale movies, don't go that way. If everyone's doing neon lights, don't go that way. You don't have to spend a lot of money, but be really, really creative and use contrast in your lighting. You don't need a lot for that, and it can go a long way. And if, again, your film career is started with a couple of clamp lights and some um, wax paper and clothespins, you're going to get real good at knowing what you can and cannot do with nothing. So reach for the stars and land on the moon. Uh, The second one, the second to last thing that he says is edit your own work. What he talks about is is, uh, using digital software to edit. Well, now... Everyone does that. But so I'm going to I'm gonna sort of tweak his note. Edit your own work. At least your early stuff. Uh, this goes in line with the, the technical aspect of filmmaking, right? They say the script, any movie is, is written, is written, directed, produced, is created in three phases. Three very distinct phases. There's the writing phase in which it all comes from the source of, of creativity down within... In, down into the writer 
and into the uh, onto the page. So that's number one. That is a movie unto itself. Then from there it passes over to the director. Even if the director, even if the director is the writer, it still passes into a phase where now it's a collaborative effort. Now you've got crew. Now you've got limitations. Your film evolves. It is is a brand new thing where it may have spawned like an acorn falling from a tree from the script, but now it is becoming its own new thing. And then an editorial, right? When you get all the footage shot and you've got to piece together this thing, especially when you don't have many resources, that is when uh, this the this product, this this artistic endeavor, it takes its final form. So if you're the person at all three phases, it's just a matter of probability that it's going to become much more likely to be your vision or at least some semblance of your vision. So I, I can't recommend that enough. I did that a lot with my early shorts. Um, like I said, I do it with this podcast and it really helps me have an understanding of what to get. You know, maybe one day, eventually, you won't, you no longer will need to edit your own stuff. But again, just like learning what lights do and learning what the camera does, if you know the editorial process, you know not to waste time on shit you don't need, and you know what to spend more time on that maybe you initially don't think is that important because maybe you're caught up in the story and and you're not providing enough coverage. You know, different angles so that there allows some flexibility in the in the editing room so um learn that process just like with everything else and the more you know about the soup to nuts process of how to make a film the more unstoppable you'll be at getting your vision across and if all of this is like not applicable to you if all of this is like hey man i just want to i just want to work in craft service that's cool dude because because you're still be valuable on set, I guarantee it. I've never seen one position on set that wasn't enhanced by having a deeper understanding of the entire process. Even if it means it's something as simple as being uh, understanding when production is having hardships or uh, the director is taking a lot, whatever it may be, just that deeper awareness and understanding is gonna is gonna take you further. If you want to be a filmmaker, learn your craft. Um, the last thing he talks about is getting an agent. I don't care. Get an agent. I mean, I have an agent. It's cool. Um, many years I did not have an agent. It certainly will help you. Sometimes it doesn't. That to me is like, that's, that is cart before the horse, right? Learn your craft. You learned your craft. You're going to learn to be a filmmaker and then you'll be unstoppable. So, um, revisiting 10 minute film school, doing my hour long film school, I think it all mostly applies. Uh, I, I think that, um, you know, with all the streaming services that are out there nowadays and and uh, maybe less YouTube these days now, that, that bubble kind of burst, but all the various avenues that one has to put out your work, the more – now is, there's never a time that is more um, – where filmmaking is more accessible, but at the same time – there's been never been a time when it's been oversaturated with people who don't respect the business, didn't learn their craft, have a poor attitude, you know, think set is a fashion show, whatever it may be, right? Those people don't last long. You know, those are uh, this is another walkaways, and those people are uh, are toilet supply salesmen in the future. 
So that spot's going to open. Let it open for you. Take the time to learn your craft, to learn the positions, to uh, to do it yourself. DIY punk rock attitude. It's going to make you stronger on set. And here's the age-old question. Oh, you know what? We're going to get to this, so I'll, I'll answer it later. But, but the less you rely on others, the more unstoppable you'll be. So remember that. Take it to heart. If you want to be a filmmaker, you are a filmmaker. Go ahead and make your business card. Pass them around and get to work because it is work, but it is gratifying work. And hopefully uh, it, it enriches your soul on a creative level. And so with that, let's go to a couple of audience questions. Questions from the Corrupt. Trebo666 asks, what's your opinion on the new Hellraiser series that's currently in development with HBO? Uh, well, I love Hellraiser. And I've talked about that um, quite often, unabashedly. I don't know much about the series for HBO. I think it's a bit weird that like Bruckner, David Bruckner is directing a movie, a new version of, of Hellraiser. But separate from him, there's a, I think it's Clive Barker producing HBO series. Um, so I don't know much about it other than to say... I'm excited about it. I mean, I love the world of Hellraiser. I think there is so... The movies, as much as I love them, especially the first one, I I still feel like they, they, they really only scratch the surface of that world building. And there's so much more to explore, I think, as is the case with so many movies out of the 80s and the horror genre. It got really fixated on Pinhead and you know the creature, the, the you know the Jason Freddy, um, Michael Myers sort of archetype of, of focusing on the villain, and and um, there's a lot of really rich material to mine and to make make interesting. So uh, from my perspective, I'm excited. We'll see what they do. I mean, I've, I haven't watched Watchmen, but I heard Watchmen was excellent. You know, and that was one that was kind of skeptical hippo on. And Game of Thrones, I know a lot of people kind of had some mixed feelings on the last season, but I think that's a quality show. I think HBO has a very good track record. They don't make a lot of junk. So, yeah, hey, let's do it. Let's The more Hellraiser, the better. It's awesome. Next question. Gloria asks, what's your opinion on film school? Is it worth it or not if you're wanting to get into the industry? <laughs> See, I almost mentioned this earlier, but I, I wanted to save it. So... Uh, what is my opinion on film school? And is it worth it to get into industry? Okay, so my feeling on film school is don't waste your money. It doesn't teach you anything that will actively help you on set. Now, there's caveats. I'm, I'm sure I'm pissing off so many people right now. But there's caveats to that. I, ta- I spent this whole podcast talking about being technical, right? Well... You can learn a lot of technical stuff in film school. So that's that's a plus, right? Um, you make a lot of connections, allegedly, in film school. That's what I hear. That's like the big selling point. You're going to get work. And sometimes people do, you know. But, but the opinion that Robert Rodriguez has and the opinion that I have is that film, make, film school does not make you a filmmaker. It, it makes you a, a, a very in-debt PA. Um, and maybe not even a good one. Save that money. I mean, I don't know what film school is now, like a hundred grand. Save that money and go make 
you I'm not saying make a hundred grand feature right off the bat. That that'd be foolish. You know, walk before you run, Cessna before you seven forty seven, so on and so forth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But but you know, if you've got a hundred grand laying around that you would normally put towards film school, make like a hundred thousand dollar films. Make you know, man make ten thousand whatever. Like just put that money towards failing at filmmaking enough times that by the end of it you are a experienced successful artor producer filmmaker crew member whatever it may be if you've got that kind of cash laying around take a portion of it buy a camera buy some lights again don't buy the expensive stuff off the out the gate but put that money to getting real set experience um if the question is is it necessary to get into film and to get onto a set and film? I don't think that it is at all. Um, that being said, I mean, it's pretty rad to be able to go to school and just focus on film theory and stuff. I mean, that sounds amazing. I wish I could go back and do that. I mean, I guess I could, but it's kind of pointless at this point. Um, if you want to go to film school because you want to get a more enriched, well-rounded, uh, academic sense of film as a whole, then film school seems pretty dope and seems pretty cool. If you want to learn how to be a filmmaker on set, uh, then be on set. Don't be in a classroom. Filmmaking, film school to me, it teaches you how to be a teacher. It doesn't teach you how to be a filmmaker, right? Just like, um, uh, I don't know, when you go to college and you take a course in literature, for example, Taking a creative writing class in college teaches you how to be a creative writing teacher. It doesn't necessarily teach you how to be a writer. It may give you some of the foundation. It may give you some bullet points. It may give you um, some pearls of wisdom. But what it doesn't teach you is the craft. That is something you got to learn by putting the work in. And you got to get out of the classroom and get onto a set Put that work in, get that experience, learn from your mistakes, learn from other people's mistakes, and that will make you a filmmaker and you won't be $100,000 in debt. Uh, and and I, I just, again, my personal experience is uh, I, don't, I don't hate people who went to film school. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a deterrent necessarily, although it can be because, you know, if everyone's going through the same courses, then everyone's kind of learning the same way and then... You know, you kind of take away a little bit of that creativity and isn't that kind of what we're all doing? But I do think also that um, uh, there's more benefit to just putting in, getting your hands dirty than sitting in a classroom. My personal opinion, I don't see that it necessarily helps. Other people would disagree. Lots of people would disagree, especially if you're $100,000 in debt and you have to justify why you went to film school. Um, let me know. Maybe I'm wrong. I didn't go to film school and I, I found a way to make it work. So I believe in it. I, I think you can too. It's um, film is not for the elite. It is for the, it's for the uh, innovative and uh, innovation surpasses class. So make it so. Next question. Dark Empire asks, why do you think the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance is not being renewed for a second season? It seemed like the first season left it open for another one. Why did Dark Crystal get cancelled and not renewed? I don't know. Netflix has a weird, um, they've got a weird sort of algorithm and they're very numbers, data oriented folks. And 
they, I don't know, they, they ran some sort of uh, diagnostics and determined that in some sort of a bell graph that Dark Crystal Age of Resistance didn't meet the right criteria to warrant a, a, uh, a renewal, which is a sad, which is sad because as the, the questionnaire points out, it, it opened the door for a sequel. And um, you know that show. I have a friend who worked on that show, and it had a really short turnaround. And uh, the, what they were able to accomplish, we, me and Jude, when we were in, uh, we were in uh, Atlanta before COVID hit, got a chance to go to their puppet museum, and they had a bunch of the Dark Crystal puppets up for display. It was so cool. And uh, I mean, again, craftsmanship, you know, true artisanship. Uh, it's a shame that it didn't get picked up. The other thing that's a shame is that. Netflix seems to be the haven for shows that that don't that get dropped from other places. You know, your Arrested Development and um, uh, Cobra Kai is the most recent one. But I, I think I read somewhere and I heard somewhere that with Netflix, they there's like a, a, a pretty pretty sizable window that you can't you can't take your series elsewhere to, to maybe find life on a on another network, another streaming service. So unfortunately. It seems like we've seen the last of it, which is a real bummer. And um, who knows? Uh, I think Netflix is way too liberal with their with their cutting of, of seasons, canceling. Uh, they, they ban. Talk about cancel culture. Netflix is a king of cancel culture in a way that's actually, a, 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 unfortunately, has an impact in the world. So it's a bummer. Uh, I don't get it. But um, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe at some point. If we all put our energy into it, someone there will will um, see the light of day and will get more Dark Crystal. Uh, I wouldn't bank on it, but we can always hope. Beatles Juice asks, I've just noticed that the Craft reboot will be on Amazon Prime on October 27th, yet there's no trailers and nothing's been announced for it. Why do you think this is? The Craft, the Craft series, another series, a movie I love, and a movie in our witch bracket, which again, reminder, go vote. Um, so Blumhouse is producing a craft remake or reboot or some reimagining something. And it's being dumped on Amazon Prime right before Halloween. And I say dumped because the reason you probably haven't heard anything about it, the reason I haven't heard anything about it, the reason there's no trailers out, there's no marketing material, probably, I'm not saying 100%, certainly it's all subjective. You could maybe watch it and think it's amazing. Maybe you'll watch it and you'll think it's better than the original. But from my perspective, it probably signifies that they don't have a lot of faith in it and they're just going to dump it to DVD or, or I guess streaming in this instance because um, they're not feeling very confident in its success rate. Because we've seen other movies that Blumhouse has produced, say Halloween Kills, for example, or Candyman, which is uh, Jordan Peele and, and Nia DaCosta. You know, those movies are just pushing into 2021 to wait for that lucrative, you know, theater watching audience. So the fact that they're not only releasing it early on streaming, but also that we've seen no material around it probably leans to me that it's not testing very well. And maybe it's a stinker and um, and they just decide to cut their losses. I, I don't know. Pure speculation on my part. I haven't heard anything about it uh, at all. But, um, you know, I... Uh, look, it's it's hard because for me, the original was such a seminal film for me growing up that imagining a, a reboot just doesn't seem very interesting to me. But 
who knows? We'll see. Hey, listen, don't judge a book before it comes out. Don't judge a movie before you see the movie itself. It's really annoying. Uh, that's that's shit for for Twitter film critics. Be above that and uh, let's give it a chance. Or if you're not interested at all, just don't watch it. It's fine. It'll be okay. The world will keep on spinning, at least until the asteroid comes. So with that said, I think that's all that we have. Remember, this week we have The Craft, the original, not this uh, shitty reboot that's being dumped uh, unceremoniously, but the original Craft versus the Witches of Eastwick. Remember to vote. Remember to uh, go to the Slasher app, your home your online source for all things horror. If you miss horror conventions, if you want to meet other people who have your same horror interest, if you want to, um, you know, if you want to be around a community of people who who aren't filled with drama, like on the Twitter sphere, uh, the Slash Wrap, I cannot recommend enough. It's awesome. Damon, who runs it, is a beast. He keeps it under control. Um, all the people who contribute are awesome. So, and and they're about as indie as any anyone else, right? So go support indie uh, content creators in in this instance an app. So go check out the Slasher app. Go vote on their Instagram at the Slasher app. Go vote on our Grindhouse Instagram at the Grindhouse Podcast. And I want to plug a couple of things that I don't think I don't really don't ever do this very often on this show. You know, I. It, 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 for those of you who know me personally, I use my first name and a and my my company, my production company's name as sort of my last name on this show. I, I had this envisioning this sort of uh, separation between church and state, between my professional life and my online life, and uh, I don't often promote stuff that I've worked on, but I, I've got a lot of stuff coming out. So uh, and and a lot of these film shoots were pretty fucking hard. Um, so the fact that this these cool creative things have been birthed, you know, I want to, I want to get them some love because the crews and the cast work so hard behind them that they deserve to get some attention. Even if there are elements of that filmmaking process that were difficult or hard or painful, oftentimes, um, much like birth, childbirth, your creative birthing, right? I don't know. I'm a guy. What do I know about that? I should talk it out of turn, but uh, I know I can talk about filmmaking, and that process is pretty painful sometimes, as amazing and beautiful as it is. Um, uh, those of you who are parents can tell me. I don't know what I'm talking about, but the creative birthing process is a difficult one, but the but the end result is something that you'll love forever on some level. So uh, if you're a subscriber of Quibi, I produced a film called Wireless, uh, or, or Quibi called Wireless, that is out now that stars Ty Sheridan and Andy McDowell and... Uh, Mick Steamy is in it, and it's uh, we shot this in Utah on the side of a mountain in the snow in a very short uh, turnaround schedule. And I think that all things considered, it came out really innovative, and it's re- it's worth checking out. And I'm and I'm curious because sometimes as a filmmaker, you're just way too close to the source material to know if it's even good or not. You know, like I've I've seen many interviews with Johnny Depp where he talks about never working on his films, and or never watching his films rather because. You know, you just can't see himself on screen. And so for me as a as a producer, so often I've spent so much time immersed in this project that I am producing that by the time it's finished, I'm I I just it's like it's like a movie you've seen a billion times, you just don't have interest in watching it. So I and even if you do, like it's hard to separate 
what you know happened behind the scenes from the creative narrative. So I'm I'm really interested in you guys' feedback. If you could do me this favor, uh, I'll, maybe I'll put a post on Instagram. Tell me what you thought. Wireless. What do you think about it? Is it cool? Is it not cool? Is it innovative? Let me know your thoughts and honest thoughts too. If you love it, tell me you love it. If you hated it, I didn't write it. I'm just a producer. It was on budget. <laughs> um, but let us know because I'm really interested in that. And then um, I worked on a special recently. I think I can say this. It comes out this Thursday on Fox. Um, it's called Let's Be Real. It comes out after the presidential debate. If you're on the West Coast, I believe it premieres at 8 p.m. It's a puppet satire. It's been advertised on Deadline, so at least I can I think I can mention that much. And uh, it's cool. And that that was hard for different reasons. You know, again, you often don't have. Yeah, you know, there's always just your filmmaking is just hard. That's just the general nature of it. It was easy. Everyone could do it. But Let's Be Real comes out this week on Thursday and uh, on Fox on the 1st, October 1st. You may be listening to this evergreen. Check it out. This was a, a really rad crew. Super great people. Um, and the director, Bruce Letty, God, I can't say enough about how cool this dude is. He was so creative. He had such a good personality. He had such an optimistic view on things. Um, our producer, Rachel Field, comes from Modern Family. She was great. I mean, I just I really had a good time on this. Uh, again, sometimes things are stressful, but that doesn't mean they're bad. And I'm I'm really excited to see how this turns out. I mean, it was, it was created by Robert Smeagol, who did like Triumph, the Insult Dog, and he was the head writer on Conan Forever and SNL. So you know, there's a lot of like there's some skins on the wall behind this. So check it out. If you listen to this podcast before it comes out October 1st on Fox, 8 p.m. if you're on the West Coast, let's be real. Puppets, politics, satire, it's awesome. Check that out. And then uh, I think that there is um, Prank Encounters Season 2 will be coming out this year. I don't know when, but at some point this year that will be coming out on Netflix. So keep an eye out for that. Um you know, that, that was being filmed in the time of COVID. So we kind of stopped start on that. But um, that's why I was in Georgia and Atlanta. So whenever that comes out, check that out as well. Because Gaten is cool as hell. Again, you know, it, it, even the toughest shoots are filled with really wonderful, hardworking people. And um, and we, we put so much of ourselves into this that... We hope we entertain you. That's what we're. That's all this work, all of the sweat and the labor um, and the tears. <laughs> not a metaphor sometimes, and the blood also sometimes not a metaphor. It's all done to hopefully entertain you and say something about the world. To hold a mirror up, to grab the hammer and smash it, whatever you want to call it. It's a labor of love, and um, these three projects I could speak. To, from first-hand basis, uh, let's be real, wireless, and prank encounter season two, all coming out. If they're not already out, like wireless is, in the next two months, check them out and let me know what you think about them. I will uh, I'll put a post up when I know each one's out, and you guys can let me know your thoughts. So thank you guys very much for all your time. 
I know last week uh, was a little bit of a short podcast, and this episode I thought I'd go make up for the, the shorty one last week. Sorry if I've been a bit long-winded, but it's an important topic because um, it's. I, I feel at this point in my career, it's important to try to share what I've learned and hopefully that I can inspire someone, some young uh, Padawan in Iowa or in Texas you know, who who maybe loves films like I loved film, is inspired by filmmakers like I was inspired by filmmakers, but who doesn't know the path. And so I'm hopefully here to open that door for you, at least crack it open, and then they let you kick it in and make your own career. So thank you guys very much. Remember to vote in our witch contest. Remember to follow our social media at Grindhouse Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. You can follow me on my Twitter at Dave Oscuro. And until next time, folks, adios. You're listening to the Grindhouse Podcast on the Never Kill a Seabird Network. Please follow us on Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast and listen to us every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and now on Spotify. Spotify.